You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, well, let's pray, and uh, we'll get started tonight. Y'all ready? Yes. Yes. All right, me too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this, another opportunity to gather in your presence, Lord, to gather around your word. And Father, I thank you that, you know, as we often say, we're not physically in the same place, but I thank you that we're connected in the spirit. And Father, I thank you that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you promised us that you would be right here in our midst. So we thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your power that is there where uh, my friends and family are, Lord, and then where I am. And I thank you, Father, that as we minister the word tonight, I thank you that your thoughts will be my thoughts and my words will be your words. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that you'll help me to communicate exactly what you desire for us to hear tonight. Lord, I thank you that the word is life-changing and it causes us to be different. It causes us to be better. Lord, I thank you that faith will arise in our hearts and we believe to receive everything that you have for us. And we love you with all of our hearts and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, where we left off last week, um, and I'm going to try and and get this wrapped up tonight. I have eight pages. um, And contrary to what Alan might think, I'm going to try and cover it, cover it all. So anyway, well, we're going to pick up with where we left off last week. And um, I want to talk about, uh, and this is right from a book that Brother Hagen wrote in uh, his faith study, and that is uh, Seven Steps to Great Faith. How do we develop our faith? How do we make our faith stronger? And so we're going to go through this, and then we'll wrap it up with some some hindrances or obstacles, uh, things that can... uh, that we can allow into our lives that can hinder our faith and keep our faith working. So let's go over these. So if you're, if you're taking notes right quickly, uh, if you miss anything, everything is on the website and you can download the notes there, but here's number one, just right off the gate. And that is this, uh, the first step to great faith is you must know the integrity of the word of God and that the word and know that the word is what God declares it to be. So know the integrity of God's word. And when we say integrity, what we mean is that the word of God is uh it has no errors, it's infallible, it's God ordained, and then know that it is exactly what it declares itself to be. So know that the know the integrity of God's word because what you have to do is you have to erase any possible question marks in your heart about the Bible. You know, and again, I've had conversations with people. I remember when I was in Bible school, there were some people that I worked with while I was in Tulsa, and I remember one of the guys that was there. You know, he I remember him specifically telling me, you know, you can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions and. And, you know, people are the ones that wrote it and all of that. And you might have heard those kinds of comments, too. Well, first of all, the Bible's not full of contradictions. And, yes, people did write it, but they wrote it 
as they were moved upon by the Spirit of God to write it. And uh, so let's look at a couple of verses. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And see, as long as somebody like that guy that I'm talking about, that I worked with, as long as he believes those things, he's going to have problems believing the Bible because those things are always going to be in the back of his, his thinking. You know, can I really trust this? If God is saying this, can I really trust that he will do what he says he will do? So Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, for the word of God is living, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. So three things right there. The word of God is alive, it's living. You know, yes, it's, it's ink and paper in the form that we have it, but you have to believe by faith that it is God-breathed, it's God-inspired, God, God uh, has made it alive, and of course, anything to do with God's Word. God's Word is powerful. It's what He uses to create. It's what He uses to change things. And incidentally, it's what you use to create, and it's what you use to change things in your life. And then I like the, the fact that Paul said this. He said, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is the only thing that can accurately divide between spirit and soul and body. In other words, there, there's something unique in the way that God's Word is anointed, that, that God's Word is spiritual, but yet it'll work in your your soulish realm, in other words, in your mind, your will, and your emotions. It'll it'll weed out and expose the flesh and things that are of the flesh and really bring to light each of those areas. And so it, it's very unique and it's very uh, purposeful in that way. And so you, you need to understand that the Word of God is alive, it is powerful, and it will accomplish what God says it will accomplish. Now back up a couple of books to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and let's look at 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, I'm going to read it from the New King James, and then I'm going to read it from uh, the Amplified Bible. The New King James says this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Amplified says this, every scripture is God-breathed, given by his inspiration and is profitable for instruction, for reproof and conviction of sin, for correction of error and discipline in obedience, and for training in righteousness, in holy living, in conformity to God's will, in thought, purpose, and action. So the Word of God is able to accomplish all of those things. But if you want your faith to be able to grow and to be as strong as it possibly can be, you're going to have to believe the integrity of God's Word. Believe in that and believe that 
God's word means what it says, and it says what it means. All right, so let's go to number two. Number two is this, and I'll say this a couple of times. We must know the actual reality of our redemption in Christ. We must know the actual reality of our redemption in Christ, not as a doctrine, a philosophy, or creed, but as an actual redemption out of the authority of Satan. So let me say all that again. We must know the actual reality of our redemption in Christ, not as a doctrine, philosophy, or creed, but as an actual redemption out of the authority of Satan. And a few months ago, we did a study or a series at our church on, on redemption and what redemption means. So I really won't get into a lot of the details of it tonight, but, but redemption, the plan of redemption, and what God did for us in redemption is he paid the price necessary to buy us out of sin to buy us out of Satan's control and to place us into his control, his plan, his will, and all of those things. Back up with me. You're there in 2 Timothy. Go back to Colossians chapter 2, or Colossians 1, rather, excuse me. Colossians chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 12. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. And it says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified or made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us, past tense, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, one translation says translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So you and I have been transferred. We've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness, out of Satan's kingdom, and we've been placed into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ under his authority and his rule, and that the price has been fully paid to redeem us and to purchase our forgiveness. You know, one way that I, I, I use to remember redemption is I'm old enough to remember uh, S&H green stamps. And I remember when my mother would go to the grocery store, she would get S&H green stamps. The cashier would give her some and she'd bring them home to me. And I had the thing and I used to love to lick them and stick them on the, the uh, little card that they would give you. And when you got enough, you could take it to the SNH store and redeem it for something. And so, you know, that's always just stuck in, in my thinking. And so what Jesus did is he paid the price on the cross for us so that he could go and redeem us and purchase us out of the authority of Satan, the realm of sin, and everything that goes along with that. So we are redeemed. And so don't let redemption be a theological term only. Don't let it be something that is a doctrine of the church only, but let it uh, be something that you have deep down in your heart an understanding of that you have been redeemed 
out of the authority of Satan. Understand this, the devil does not have any authority over you anymore unless you yield to him. You have been brought into the kingdom under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only way that the devil can gain an inroad into our lives is if we allow him that access. Okay, so that is one of the big parts of redemption. All right, so here's number three. We must know the reality of the new creation. We must know the reality of the new creation, both from a legal standpoint, spiritually, and a, a vital living standpoint. Okay, we must know the reality of the new creation, both from a legal standpoint and a vital living standpoint. Now, uh, if you want to turn over to 1 John, I'm going to meet you there in just a moment, but let me just quote uh, a very familiar scripture that we all know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul wrote and he said this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and if you're born again, you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the good news of this is that everything that you were before you got saved, before you received the Lord Jesus and were born again, all of that has been passed away. All of that is gone. You are not the same person that you were before you got saved. And, you know, and I know it was a, I don't hear it much anymore because I guess I don't hang around circles that, that, that say this, but, you know, it used to be um, a while back, you'd hear people say, well, you know, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. And uh, the, the reality is, no, you're not an old sinner. You were a sinner. You received Jesus. You got born again and you were delivered from that sin and brought out of that and made a brand new person. Now, you might sin in that you live in a flesh body, you're dealing with temptation and all of that, but that just because a believer sins does not make that believer a sinner, all right? Uh, let me see if I can remember this. A sinner is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. All right. In other words, it's inherent in a in the nature of a sinner to sin, but it is not part of your nature as a believer to sin. And uh, you know, it that's one of the the truths of being a new creation is the fact that you're not the same, and um, all of those things are gone. The power of that sin. Romans chapter six tells us that the power of sin has been broken off of us. So sin does not have any power on its own to stay in your life, to remain effective in your life, unless you yield to it, okay? Now, you're there, uh, hopefully, in 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. It says this, We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, I want to focus on the first part of that verse. 
the John wrote and he said, we know that we have passed from death to life. That word passed there, P-A-S-S-E-D, means to change place and condition. It means to change place and condition. So we know that we have changed place and our spiritual condition has been changed from death to life. Now that's huge. And uh, again, if you want to have strong faith, you're going to have to believe that you're a new creation in Christ. Um, you know, if you constantly hang on to your past, your past failures, your past mistakes, your past sin, all of that, I can promise you that is going to hinder your faith because your mind and the devil are going to work on you uh, because when you go to release your faith, the first thing that's going to pop into your mind is this, you know, God can't answer that prayer for you because you know what you did before you got saved. You know who you were before you got saved, all of those types of things. And yeah, we do remember that, but the fact of the matter is I'm not that person anymore. I got born again. I am a new creation, okay? Now, here's number four, and this works hand in hand with what we're talking about, and that is this. Number four is we must know the reality of our righteousness in Christ. We must know the, re the, the reality of our righteousness in Christ. Now, righteousness is a, a theological doctrinal word that maybe we say, but we don't fully understand the impact of what being righteous is. So let's look at a few scriptures, and then we'll, we'll comment on that. Go over with me to Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Well, I'll tell you what, let's back up to verse 21, Romans 3, 21, and I'm going to read down through verse 26. Romans 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now, let me just go ahead and define righteousness. Righteousness means right standing with God. Righteousness is right standing with God. So Paul is saying here, but now the righteousness of God or right standing with God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And, and I'm going to replace righteousness with what I just told you. Even the right standing of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might have heard that that's that verse before, uh, but verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, there's that word again, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his right standing, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins 
that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me just define those words again. Righteousness means right standing with God. To be justified means legally declared innocent. Legally declared innocent. So if you look at Verse 25, it says that because of his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, legal, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me break this down for you. You and I, through the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in him, have been declared innocent by God, and we now have right standing with God. That's what it means to be justified and declared righteous. So you and I, our sin has been washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus, and so because of that, we in God's mind have and heart have been declared innocent. Hallelujah. So that our sin will never be brought up again from God. And then, in addition to being declared innocent legally, you have been made right in God's eyes. In other words, you and I can, and I like this, and I heard this years ago, you and I can stand in the presence of a holy God as though sin never existed in our lives. Let me say that to you. You and I can stand in the presence of a holy God as though sin never existed in our lives. That's what being made righteous is all about. Now, you're there in Romans. Go over to chapter 5 and verse 17. Romans 5, verse 17. It says this, For if by the one man's offense, talking about Adam's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace, that's you and me, and of the gift of righteousness or right standing will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And that's powerful. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And then just... uh Make a note of this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, he, Jesus, made him, or no, excuse me, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, let me say that translate this verse to you this way. Second Corinthians 5:21. Jesus, through the plan of God, was made something that he was not, so that you and I, through the plan of God, could be made something we were not. In mm-hmm. other words, through Adam's sin, you and I were sinners. Jesus never sinned, okay? 
So, but the, the good news is he surrendered himself and allowed himself to become the price for our sin and in legally became sin for us, not with his sin, but with our sin, so that you and I could become something we never were, and that was right with God. That's what righteousness means, okay? So again, Jesus became something that he was not, and think about this with me. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, you can tell when that transfer took place. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, you can tell that as he began to endure everything that he was enduring, that spiritual death came on him. And when someone experiences or is spiritually dead, they are separated from God. And so for the first time in his eternal existence, Jesus experienced separation from God. That's why he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, for the first time in his eternal existence, God had to turn his back on the son of God because he was paying the price for my sin and your sin. And so the good news is that he paid that price. He experienced that separation from God so that once the price was paid, you and I, through being born again, could be made one with God and unified with God the same way that Jesus was before he ever went to the cross. Okay, that's the whole purpose of everything that he, he did on the cross for us was so that we could be made, we who were spiritually dead could be made spiritually alive and we could be placed in right standing with God. Okay, now, uh, Brother Hagen said in, in his book, he said, this means that we can stand in God's presence without any sense of guilt, condemnation, or inferiority. And that means the prayer problem is settled. Mm -hmm. So once you thoroughly understand, I am right with God. Okay. And here's the, <laughs> here's the beauty of it. Okay. Now, if you choose to, um, well, let me say this, you can damage your fellowship with God by sin, but it's really, really hard for you to damage your relationship with God. Okay. Um, so what I want you to see is, is that if you have a revelation that I am right with God, and of course we don't, we don't learn these things so that we can abuse it and, and live in sin and, and say, well, I'm right with God. No, you're going to have to deal with some consequences if you choose to live in sin, because the Bible clearly says the wages of sin is death. I don't care if you're a believer or not. If you choose to live in sin, it will cost you. Okay. But when you're pursuing God and you're pursuing his righteousness there is something about knowing that I am right with God that gives you a boldness in your prayer life. It gives you a boldness as you walk with the Lord. It gives you a boldness to know that when you stand in faith on God's word, God will do what he said he will do, and he will answer my prayers. Okay, now let's go to number five. Number five is this. If you want strong faith, you must know the reality 
of the indwelling spirit. You must know the reality of the indwelling spirit of God. Okay. Now I want to, I'm going to use this as a reference. Okay. And what we're talking about here is the indwelling spirit that comes as a result of being born again. You know, uh, we Pentecostal sometimes get it confused and think that people that uh, have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit don't have the Holy Ghost living on the inside of them, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you are born again, when you receive Christ, that it is the Spirit of God that causes that work to take place in your spirit, and God lives and dwells on the inside of you. Now, you're not experiencing the fullness of that unless you do receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to see is that there is something powerful about understanding and knowing I have God living down on the inside of me through the Spirit of God. First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 4, don't, don't go there, just write it down. First John 4, 4 says this, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So when you got born again, the spirit of God moved in on the inside of you and he is greater than the spirit that is of the world and of the, the enemy. All right. So you can, you can have confidence in knowing that God lives and dwells on the inside of me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Again, don't turn there, just listen. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament, and this has been God's plan all along. This is what God wanted to have happen in the Old Testament. This is why he had them construct a tabernacle that they had to put it in the middle of the camp of the children of Israel because God wanted to live and dwell in and among his people. So he said, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So you are a portable tabernacle, if you will. Of the, of the presence of God and of the Spirit of God. God lives and dwells on the inside of you. First John chapter 4 uh, tells us that he who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Now, you need to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but you already have God on the inside of you. It's just when you receive the, the infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit, however you want to refer to it, you get full to overflowing with the Spirit of God. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. So yes, you do have God on the inside of you as a result of being born again, but you need to be filled to overflowing with him. And the reason we know this is, you know, the disciples, uh, when Jesus breathed on them right at the last, when he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, they got born again at that moment. But then he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the power uh, that comes on high. And of course, you know what happened in Acts chapter two is that they were baptized and were filled with the Holy Spirit, but they were already born again. Now, 
I want to say this, a person, you know, from say a denominational church that doesn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if they are born again, they are not less of a Christian than we who are Pentecostal are, okay? In other words, we're all the same. It's just we have received that second experience, and they have not. But it doesn't make us spiritually better. It makes us spiritually better off, if that makes sense to you, okay? All right, now, so you have to know the reality of the indwelling spirit. Number six, you must know the reality of our fellowship with God. You must know the reality of our fellowship with God. Now, I want to say this. It is very, very important that you as a believer know how, first of all, know that you can, but then secondly, know how to fellowship with God, how to commune with God, how to spend time with God, how to dwell in his presence, how to worship him, how to um, pray, how to, all those things that are part of that. How do you hear? from the Lord, uh, because God desires, as we just read, he wants to fellowship with us. The only, the main reason he wanted to dwell among his people and live in his people is so that he could fellowship with us. You know, God, is the, the, the awesome thing and the, the powerful truth about the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us is that, yes, God may have his residence in heaven, but through the Spirit of God, he lives and dwells in each and every one of us. So he's not way far off in heaven somewhere out in the twilight zone. And, and uh, you know, you, you'll get to see him one day, which we will. But the truth is, he lives and dwells in you now, and you can fellowship with him now. You can have a living, vital, um, alive relationship with the Father now. You can fellowship with him now. You can talk to him now. By the way, prayer is a conversation. It, prayer isn't designed to be a one-way street, if you will, all right, where all we do is we just pray and talk to him. God desires to minister to us and speak to us and to fellowship with us. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You've been called into fellowship with him. You've been called to, to live in and with him. And um, I really feel sorry for believers that have never or don't ever experience that type of communion with God. God desires to minister to you and to spend time with you and to, uh, just like we, and I'm going to say this, but understand this, just like we get something out of God's presence, God gets something out of your presence. And the same way that we experience God by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are times when you can uh, really strongly sense his presence. Um, you need to understand that there are 
that, that God wants to sense your presence in the spirit. If that makes sense to you. Okay. In other words, it's, it, as I said, it's a two way thing. Write this down, please. First uh, John chapter one, verses three and four. First John one, three and four says that, that, that which we have seen and heard, this is the apostle John talking, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So God has called us to a place of fellowship uh, that he wants us to have fellowship, not just with each other, but fellowship with the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is, you know, and I'm going to make it really, really simple, but it's through his word, through prayer, and through worship. And God has promised, the Bible says in the Old Testament, that God inhabits the praises and the worship of his people. When you learn how uh, and to spend time worshiping and praising God, God has promised that he, and, and when he says dwell, what that means is he will come and make his home in your worship. I like to, to say it this way. When you spend time worshiping and praising God, you're actually in your worship constructing a place for God to move into and to dwell with you. Okay, so when you spend time and you're praising and worshiping the Lord, whether that's with music or not, or however you choose to do it, you're constructing a home, a place for God to take up residence in so that he can spend time with you and fellowship with you. It's very, very powerful that we understand that. Okay, now here's number seven. We must know the authority of the name of Jesus. We must know the authority of the name of Jesus. And I'm just going to give you these two references. Uh, John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Uh, Jesus said, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you, and until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you shall receive, you will receive, that your joy may be full. So we're to pray, and of course we talked about this, we're to pray in Jesus' name and to understand the power of that name, but just so that we have a revelation of the power and authority of the name of Jesus. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I'll tell you what, turn over there, Ephesians chapter 1, and let's look at verses 19 through 23. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. So Paul prayed, and he said that he, he prays, he prayed for the church at Ephesus, and by the way, you can pray this prayer over yourself, that they would receive revelation of what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion 
and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So getting to the point, the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven that carries more weight or authority than the name of Jesus. And you and I need to get a revelation of that. We need to understand what happens in the realm of the spirit when we declare and speak that name. Uh, the Bible says that uh, the, the, the powers of darkness fear that name. They do not like you to know what is the power and authority of that name. Heaven also responds to that name. Angelic beings, angels respond to that name because it is the highest name and has the most authority, God-given authority, by the way. It, the Bible says that that name is far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every other name that is named. So I want you to remember that, that the name of Jesus is higher than the name of cancer. The name of Jesus yes. is higher yes. than poverty. The name of Jesus is higher than any other name that we know of. It, and every other name and, and person and being must bow its knee to the name of Jesus. So, so we must get a revelation of that. All right. Now, Quickly, in the time that we have left, I'm going to endeavor. I know I'm not going to make it because I'm going to get bogged down in some of this. But let's talk about some hindrance to, hindrances to your faith. Okay, we, we just talked about seven things that will help your faith to reach its full potential. But I want to give you seven hindrances to your faith. Now, here's number one, and, and that is this, unforgiveness. Mm -hmm. Unforgiveness. Now, unforgiveness is probably one, if not the greatest hindrance to your faith mm -hmm. working. Now, go over with me to Mark's gospel, Mark the 11th chapter. And the reason that I, I say that is because this is the only hindrance that Jesus really focused on in his teaching in the gospels that we have record of. And uh, it's the one that he mentioned it specifically. So if, if Jesus mentions something specifically, it is very important. Okay. So right after, you know, Jesus in Mark eleven twenty two 22 told the disciples to have the faith of God, verse 23, for assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. In verse 24, therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And very often, and you know, rightfully so, when we're teaching on faith, we focus on 22, 23, and 24. But Jesus did not miss a beat and, and just kept right on going when he, he, when he gave us what we have as verses 25 and 26, 
And the first ver first word in verse 25 is and, meaning it's connected to what he just got through saying. And whenever you stand praying, now I'm going to say it to you this way. And whenever you stand and are releasing your faith, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, this is very, very important. Now, and let me say why. Because when you choose to dwell in unforgiveness, number one, you're hindering your faith from being able to work. And secondly, you're tying the hands of God from being able to forgive you of your sin. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again. When you and I uh, dwell in unforgiveness, when we keep unforgiveness in our hearts, not only do we hinder our faith, our prayers from being answered and and our faith from being able to work, then we also are, are tying the hands of God from being able to forgive us of our sins. And that's not a position that you and I want to be in, okay? Now, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, just make a note of it, Galatians 5, 6, that faith works by love. So without love, your faith is not going to work, period. You and I must walk in love if we want our faith to work. Now, walking in love, that, that includes uh, forgiving, forgiving people when they offend us or, or something along that line, but... Uh, you know, and again, I could spend a lot of time teaching from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, but you can just make a note of that and go read that. That is the standard. That is the love standard. And I encourage you, read 1 Corinthians 13th chapter in the Amplified Bible, okay? Because it really lays it out there. And I'm telling you, it will do you good to get in there and to study that because again, if your faith works by love, then we ought to be love experts. We ought to be so skilled in our love walk, uh, not just for the motivation of, um, you know, keeping our faith from, from being hindered, but because God is, is love. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love, and that's the way God operates. So you need to learn what it means. The, the Amplified Bible says this in Galatians 5, 6, for if we are in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith is activated and energized and expressed and working through love. So faith, your faith will not be able to be activated and energized and expressed and work unless you are walking in love. All right. Now I want to just point out a couple of things to you. You remember, uh, we've talked extensively about the woman that was healed of the issue of blood in Mark chapter five. Okay. And, uh, if you'll remember in Mark five 34, 
Notice what Jesus, he said to her after she came to him, she touched the hem of his garment, power left him. And, and he uh, turned and said, who touched me? And you know the story. And, and she told him the whole story about how she had been to 12 physicians and so forth and so on. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction or be whole, as the old King James says. Now, I want to ask you a question. Jesus said her faith made her well. Do you think her faith was being hindered in any way? The answer is no, obviously, because her faith worked for her. So let me let me just toss this out to you. Do you would you <laughs> if you had been dealing with a condition in your body for 12 years, had been to many doctors, had many hospital visits, spent every dime you had, and yet you had not gotten any better, but as she in her condition, but rather grew worse. Do you think in your heart you might be tempted to be a little mad at somebody in the medical profession because they didn't find a cure or they didn't, uh, you know, do what they needed to do or treat you properly and still took your money? Don't you think you'd be <laughs> tempted to have a little attitude about that? Well, don't you, you know, and just work with me here. Can it, it can it be a safe assumption that this woman had to walk in forgiveness towards all of those physicians because they took her money and didn't either could not or did not treat her in order to facilitate health in her body? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think human nature would be uh, to get a little upset about that. Well, her faith was unhindered. So I believe, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but the, I believe that she was willing to let go of that and to walk in forgiveness so that, mm -hmm. so that she was in a position to be able to receive from Jesus when she touched him. Okay. Now, let me give you another example. Um, you ever heard of Caleb and Joshua in the Old Testament? Yes. If you remember... Caleb and Joshua in Numbers, the 13th chapter, were sent with the other 10 spies into the promised land to go spy out the promised land. And if you'll recall, mm -hmm. Caleb and Joshua and the other 10 spies came back. The 10 gave a bad report. Caleb and Joshua said, let's go in at once and take the land. But the people listened to the 10 and their bad report and not Caleb and Joshua and so because of their unbelief, it caused the children of Israel to have to wander around in the desert for 40 more years. Now, let me paint this picture for you. Caleb and Joshua are already in their 40s. Now they're going to have to wander around with these unbelieving, ornery, stubborn people in the desert for 40 more years until they all die off, except Caleb and Joshua, and only to come back to the same place again at the Jordan River. And at this time, now Joshua is in charge. Moses has died and Joshua is in charge. And now they're able to go in and take the land. And, and you can read about the exploits of Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was 85 years old. 
And he chose, now, and you got to pay attention to the details when you're reading about this, but Caleb chose an area in the promised land that was still known to be inhabited by giants. He said, give me the mountain. I'll take the mountain. I'll whip them. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. he went in. Now, what's my point? I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time keeping my heart right for 40 years, knowing I could have been there already if it weren't for those people that I'm having to wander around in the desert with. All right. But the Bible says that they were still able to accomplish what they did by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that they did everything that they did by faith. Okay. And so what I'm saying to you is Caleb and Joshua, in my opinion, had to walk in forgiveness towards those people so that they could enter in to what God had promised them. And so just a couple of examples, you know, think about this, you know, David, when Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint David to be king of Israel, you know, his father, there were eight sons, by the way, there were seven that Jesse paraded in front of Samuel and none of them were the ones that God chose. How would you like to be David out in the, the pasture tending the sheep, and here comes somebody that says, hey, your father's asked for you to come up to the house, the prophet's here, and uh, he wants to see you. And so you know that you were the last one that was chosen. You were the last one that was called for to come to the house, and then on top of that, after Samuel anoints David to become king of Israel, his brothers despised him. You remember what happened when uh, Goliath was harassing the, the armies of Israel? And David just shows up on the scene with a picnic lunch for his brothers sent from his father. And they smarted off at David saying, why have you come up here? Are you just here so you can see what, I mean, it just gave David a hard time. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd want to have some attitude about that. First of all, why didn't you invite me to come to the house when Samuel came? Why was it a last resort for me to come? And then secondly, why are all those older brothers despising me because God chose me? All right. In other words, David had an opportunity to live and walk in unforgiveness, but he decided to let all that go and forgive them. And so because of that, God was able to move in his life in a great way. And the Bible calls him, God himself called him a man after his own heart. So my point is this, if you want your faith to, to be strong and remain strong and be unhindered, the number one thing that you're going to have to deal with is unforgiveness towards people. You cannot, I cannot afford to hold on to wrongdoings and offenses that people might have committed against me. You cannot do it. You cannot afford to do that. Number one, it hinders your faith. But secondly, you know, you can open, open the door for the enemy to be able to have access into your life, uh, you know, and just, just cause a whole bunch of problems because you choose to hold on to those things that uh, are offenses in your life and not let them go, okay? And choose to forgive those people. 
Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.